You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. The resurrection is the center of all of the apostolic proclamation. Everything that they taught, all the doctrine flows out from the resurrection. That's the centerpiece on the table. That's the focal point of everything. We saw apostles, they were talking about the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus broke the power of death over humanity. The resurrection of Jesus vindicated Jesus as an innocent and a righteous man, as the very Son of God. Who is someone in your life that needs to hear about Jesus? His resurrection is the centerpiece of our faith. In today's message from Pastor Tom, you will learn that the disciples' most important message was that of the resurrection. It was central to the gospel, and it was vital that the news of Jesus was spread far and wide. Having eyewitness accounts of the life, death, and resurrection was key, and the apostles had to thoughtfully choose someone who fit that criteria to join them as the 12th apostle. Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of Acts chapter 1 with today's edition of Discover Hope. In our text in Acts 1, we've been learning from the example of the first century disciples. They were living by faith. A group of 120 of these disciples who formed what we might call today the core group of the mother church of all churches, the Jerusalem church. So here's the 120 and every church in the entire planet came from these 120 and their faith their sacrifice, their willingness to become a core group and let God work through them and then see what happens. They were humble men and women. They were teachable. They were obedient. They were unified. They were faith-filled. They loved their Lord. Their purpose for being together was to follow their Lord, and that's how they were able to maintain their unity. There were no factions. There was no self-will on the part of the leaders. There was no tearing anyone else down. They were speaking well of each other. They were focused on Christ and his work, and that's why they had unity. And they're an incredible example for us. Let's read again the whole passage, starting from verse 12 in Acts 1 down to 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas. Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together, and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it and let another man take his office. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men. 
Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Well, we're watching them, seeing what they're doing, these wonderful early disciples, and we've learned already that we are supposed to be encouraging one another to obey God's word. Obey is one of those words people don't like anymore. They would like to use a word like cooperate if I kind of agree, but the Lord is the Lord above. He has authority and he would have us obey his word. Also praying together, praying together really helps people stay unified. They hear each other's heart as to what is on their heart, what they're praying about. Last time we started the working together part, which is the bulk of the section. They were working together. So obeying together, praying together, working together, the key word being together there. Last time we saw that the disciples were specifically trying to figure out or to follow the Lord in finding the replacement for Judas Iscariot, the traitor. Peter, as the leader of the apostles, took his stand among them and he directed the entire congregation. And he led them to inspired scripture. For it is in the scripture we find wisdom and in the scripture we find our unity. We pick up in verse 20, if you would look at that, please. And it says in verse 20... For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it and let another man take his office. Please notice again, Peter's high view of the Bible, of scripture, which by the way, all Christians should hold, right? Regardless of your theological background. Some of us came out of what is called liberal Christianity, liberal Protestant denominations. And we were told the Bible was not the inspired word of God. It had lots of mistakes. It didn't really have authority. Use your own brain and figure out how things should be done. That is throwing off the authority of the scripture. But God himself takes his own written word very seriously, every corner of it and all of it. And so did Peter and the apostles. Please notice his words, for it is written. Now, that might be so simple. You might scan through that quickly and not think there's much instruction in it, but there really is. In that Greek phrase, and by the way, it's a recurrent phrase in the New Testament, there's a full theological understanding in it. Gegrapsatai. It comes from grapho, to write. It's the perfect tense. It really illustrates what the authoritative nature of Scripture is. When you say, it is written, there's a finality to that. No one questions that. It's written. That's the end of the discussion is sort of the idea. It actually has, because it uses the perfect tense, it has this sense. It is written, and because it is written, it stands written, and no one can unwrite it. No one can erase it. That's the meaning of it. In other words, Scripture has been stated, and it's unstoppable. It is the word of a being who will never be erased and whose authority can never be usurped. God will never be supplanted. He'll never be ousted from his throne and he's spoken. So who's going to alter that? God won't change his mind. So there it stands written. And every being in the universe has to deal with God when he speaks. That's what this book is that we're holding in our hands. It's amazing. It is written. It's unstoppable. Once it's inscribed, whatever he says will come to pass eventually. 
Now, Peter was one of Jesus' disciples, and Peter learned his view of Scripture from Jesus. What was Jesus' view of Scripture? Jesus trusted Scripture for his own life. The proof of that is when he was at his weakest point on the 40th day of his 40 days of fasting, and Satan specifically came to tempt him and attack him at that point in time, rather than resorting to his own ideas of what he should do or reason or try to be logical with the devil. He simply said thrice, what? It is written, it is written, it is written. And all three times came from the Old Testament, actually from the book of Deuteronomy. Basically, he was telling the devil, I'm going to state the word of God to you and there isn't a thing in the world you can do about it. It's greater than you. Three times, Jesus entrusted the provision of his own holy soul to the power and the authority and the veracity of divine scripture. It's amazing. Peter now is conveying to this gathering of about 120, we have the voice of God on this matter. There's wisdom that comes through the scriptures. I'm bringing you to it. We don't need to guess what to do next. And then he goes on to quote from the Old Testament two Psalms, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Both Psalms quoted are Messianic Psalms. That means that portions of the Psalms transcended David's personal experience a thousand years before Christ and spoke of a future greater David, the son of David, who would be greater than David himself. In other words, as David was writing about his experience, the Holy Spirit meant that to transcend him and speak of a greater son of David. It's fascinating, really. Both Psalms speak of David's enemies And the Holy Spirit is indicating that these also indicate then the enemies of the Mashiach, the anointed one. David was anointed king. His greater son would be anointed king. That is the Messiah, the Christos, the the one anointed with oil, the one who was anointed to be king and to rule, the Christ, Jesus Christ. In Psalm 69, David's enemies became a type of Christ's enemies. David says, let my enemy's homestead or camp be made empty or desolate. Let none dwell in their tents, in other words. Peter, being guided by the Holy Spirit, sees that as having an application to Judas. Daryl Bach, in his commentary on Acts, explains this. Peter is not exegeting in a modern sense by merely making a reference to the original event and context. But the passage is in the Psalter, so that God's people reflect upon the way that God acts and cares for the righteous who cry out to God. Peter takes the principle expressed in the psalm as a summary of how God acts and applies it to an event where God has judged. And particularly, of course, this is in reference to David's greater son. So Judas was to lose his office entirely. Judas was to be replaced just as David's enemies were to lose their homes and their tents. That's the principle. In Psalm 109 and verse 8, that is quoted in addition to show the justification for replacing Judas. And speaking again of David's enemies, it says, let his days be few, let another take his office. Well, Judas's days were few, and another was to take his apostolic office. This is really very interesting. It's keen insight from the Holy Spirit in the mind of Peter. There were 12 apostles that Jesus chose, right? 12 apostles he put his hand on after a night of prayer, and he specifically picked the 12. Why 12? Well, there were 12 because there were 12 tribes of Israel. 
The 12 apostles were told they would rule over the 12 tribes of Israel, the nation of Israel. That's according to Matthew 19, 28. I read it before. I'll read it again. Jesus said to them, the 12, truly, I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It's an earthbound and national promise in the millennium, what Jesus calls the regeneration here after Jesus has returned the second time to earth. He will sit on his own throne, which is on earth in Jerusalem. And then they, these apostles, will reign with him on their 12 thrones over the redeemed and now saved nation of Israel, the 12 tribes. So the 12th apostle, the 12th man, was needed. He was needed for these 12 tribes. He was needed to be a full Witness for the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. By the way, beyond the millennium, as it goes into the new heaven and the new earth, mentioned in Revelation 21, 9 and following, it testifies that this new Jerusalem will have, quote, the 12 gates, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel, and the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them, that is those foundation stones, were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So their names will be inscribed in this new Jerusalem on those foundation stones. The 12 apostles, by the way, are also foundational to the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, it states this, that the church having been built on the foundation of, and now it tells us what that foundation is, the apostles and prophets. And since prophets are listed after the apostles, it means New Testament prophets, not Old Testament prophets. So the whole church, all of us as believers, being spiritual bricks, so to say, being built up into a building, if you think of the whole universal church through the centuries as one massive building that's growing into a temple, all of it is built on a very solid foundation, and that solid foundation is the apostles. In fact... Even before the foundation of the apostles were laid, the way they did construction, and no, I'm not a construction guy, so I'll just take their word for it, was they would lay a cornerstone first, and that cornerstone would allow everyone to know this is the direction of the building this way, and this is the direction of the building that way, and you'd have to lay that first. That cornerstone is who? Jesus Christ, his earthly life, and what he accomplished on earth, that had to happen first for there to be a church. And then came the apostles. They and their teaching are that foundation. And the first century Christians are built on that. And the second century Christians are built on that. And then the third century Christians, and I'm not tall enough to get to where we are. The 21st century. We're on the 21st floor, so to say. But we have the right foundation. The entire structure would be built on these apostles. Everything that would happen, wherever the gospel went, as it would spread to the Middle East, as it would spread to India, as it would spread throughout the Roman Empire, go into northern Africa, go up into Europe and Asia, all the way over here now in the Americas, wherever it would go and the churches would pop up, it's all built on that foundation. Obviously then, the apostles had to be chosen and established and set At the very beginning of the church. Got it? So they would have to make the decision about replacing Judas now. They couldn't wait 10 years and go, oh, we need a 12th apostle. Wouldn't be the time. 
So who would that 12th apostle be? And how would they decide? Well, look at verse 21. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John. And you know that's John the Baptist, baptism of John, right? John the Baptist. Until the day that he was taken up from us, Jesus was ascended. So you got baptism of John, Jesus' ascension. We have to find a man that was a witness of all of that along with us because that's what we also witness. That man that was chosen had to have definitive qualifications. He had to have been accompanied Jesus. Jesus was going in and out of them, it said. So they would be part of his band of learners, band of disciples, methetes, learners, pupils, people that were watching him and learning from him. How can you be a witness of his life if you hadn't seen his life? Now, where did Peter and the apostles get these qualifications from? Did they just sort of make it up and say, hey, we want to make sure that someone went from here to here? No, they got it from Jesus' own words. Keep your finger there and turn back to the Gospel of John, just a few pages, chapter 15. And in the upper room discourse, John 15, verses 26 and 27, and you'll see that Jesus teaches this. John 15 Verses 26 and 27, Jesus is speaking. He says, when the helper comes, you know who that is. That's the parakletos, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. When the helper comes, that happens on the day of Pentecost, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. He's going to come into the world to bear a testimony about Jesus. That helps us in our evangelism, by the way. Holy Spirit is always helping us in our evangelism, right? Then verse 27, and you, who's he speaking to, these 11, you will testify also. Why? Because you have been with me from what? The beginning. He means the beginning of his ministry in that context. You've been there so you can be the witness. If you haven't been there, you can't be the witness. Pretty simple. Jesus said one thing that made them apostles was that they were with him from the beginning of his ministry. The apostles remembered this, and now they're applying this. They counted Jesus' words just as much authoritative scripture as they did the Old Testament scriptures. Now turn back to Acts 1. Beyond just being with Jesus, please notice, very importantly, it was particularly important, and they underscore this, that whatever man they choose needed to be an eyewitness of what? The resurrection. The end of verse 22. One of these men must become a witness with us of his resurrection. The resurrection is the center of all of the apostolic proclamation. Everything that they taught, all the doctrine flows out from the resurrection. That's the centerpiece on the table. That's the focal point of everything. We saw apostles, they were talking about the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus broke the power of death over humanity. The resurrection of Jesus vindicated Jesus as an innocent and a righteous man, as the very Son of God. When God raised Jesus from the dead, God was making a statement. This man and nobody else is my beloved Son. Of course it's going to be the center of their proclamation. And as you go through Acts, and I won't take too long to do it, but I, I got to do a little bit of it. As you go through Acts, you'll see resurrection, 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 over and over. That's what they're talking about. By the way, when you do evangelism, you should be talking about the... 
Acts 2.24, Peter, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for Jesus to be held in death's power. Acts 4.2, they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And that caused all kinds of problems in Jerusalem. Acts 10, verse 40, God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. Acts 13, 30, but God raised him from the dead. I'm skipping all the other stuff you noticed, but just so you could see the resurrection. Acts 17, 18, Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Isn't that amazing? Then say he wasn't preaching Jesus and the death or Jesus and the whatever. It's the resurrection they were preaching. Acts 23, 6, and this is a fascinating passage. I can't wait to get to it because Paul says, and he causes turmoil with a lot of this at times. He says, I am on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. He was a Pharisee, you see, and he took advantage of that. Well, the apostles were the chief witnesses of this. So they had to, they had to choose someone who had seen the resurrection. Now, when they say they're the, the witness of the resurrection, they don't mean that they were inside the tomb at the moment that it happened, you know, with the camera. You know, wait, wait. I think it's coming. Resurrection. Snap now, snap. And seeing whatever happened. Nobody actually saw that. What they saw are the grave closed, the stone rolled away, and then they saw his resurrected person. That's what they mean. He is resurrected. If you want to be convinced, then go ahead and touch me. All right? I'll eat in front of you. The whole bit. 40 days. Remember all those many proofs. Now, I like uh, Richard Longenecker's comment in the Expositor's Commentary here it kind of focuses the importance of these apostles. It is from verse 21 through verse 22 that we may derive a strict definition of the term apostle. And one that determines much of what Luke presents in the remainder of the book of Acts. And an apostle then was not an ecclesiastical functionary, nor just any recipient of the apostolic faith, nor even a bearer of the apostolic message. He was a guarantor of the gospel tradition because he has been a companion of the earthly Jesus and a witness to the reality of his resurrection because the risen Lord had encountered him, end quote. That's what an apostle was. You got people running around today saying they're an apostle. Really? You don't look 2,000 years old to me. An apostle had to have been with Jesus, had to be hand-selected by Jesus, and particularly see the resurrection. There cannot be apostles in the church today. They're the foundation. They laid the apostolic witness. Talking about apostles today is just ridiculous. No one alive today has seen Jesus raised from the dead. And even if they said, yes, I have, no one would believe him. What kind of an historic reliability would that be? They would just consider that they were taking bong hits or something like that, and they saw Jesus. Who knows what they were into? Nor were the 12 apostles ever to be replaced. Uh, now you're scratching your head. You might say, but they replaced Judas. Yes, they did. But they didn't replace the other apostles. Listen. They did not replace Judas because Judas died. They replaced Judas because Judas was a traitor. You can't have a traitor being a witness of the greatest event that ever happened in human history. 
He can't hold that office. He can't stand with them and be one of the twelve. It is instructive to note that when another apostle, the apostle James, died. This is not James, the Lord's brother, but the James and John James, sons of Zebedee. When James was beheaded in prison in Acts chapter 12 and verse 2, they did not replace his office. There was no meeting. There was no prayer. There was no casting of lots. There was none of that. They did not replace his office at all. No attempt whatsoever. Eyewitness accounts are extremely helpful in verifying the truth of someone's story. You heard in today's message from Pastor Tom that the apostles of Jesus knew this, and so when the time came to replace Judas with a new apostle, they sought someone who had witnessed the same events that they did. They sought someone who knew Jesus, witnessed his crucifixion, and saw him resurrected. With Jesus as a cornerstone, the testimonies of these men would become the foundation that the early church was built upon. If you enjoyed today's message on Discover Hope, we want to hear from you. Give us a call at 443-200-HOPE. That's 443-200-HOPE. We'd also like to ask you to prayerfully consider donating to this ministry to help us expand the reach of the gospel. You can give securely online at hopebible.org. Do you live in the area of Columbia, Maryland? If so, you're invited to become part of our Sunday morning gatherings here at Hope Bible Church. Join us for a morning of Bible study, worship, and fellowship. Find out more by visiting our website. Again, that's hopebible.org. Be sure to tune in next time to Discover Hope to hear Pastor Tom explain how the disciples use the tool of lots to make the difficult choice between the two excellent candidates. You will learn more about the circumstances when it's appropriate to use lots, and you will hear who was ultimately selected as the 12th apostle. There's so much more to learn from the book of Acts, so we hope you'll tune in next time. If you'd like to listen again to today's teaching or share it with friends and family, you'll find it online at hopebible.org. Thanks for joining us on Discover Hope.